We need to understand that Jesus' death was not an unfortunate incident that came as a result of man's ingenuity or planning. Actually, it came as a result of God's predetermined counsel and foreknowledge, which the prophets foretold. And here Paul said in verses 3 and 4 that according to the scriptures, he doesn't lay out any of the scriptures for us, but we can go into the Old Testament, that which he was referring to, and we can find the gospel being presented to us in passages like Genesis 3, verse 15, in Psalm 22, in Psalm 69, in Isaiah 53, in Daniel chapter 9, in Zechariah 13, 7, and in many other places in the Old Testament. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Today we're looking at one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians 15, and, and don't worry, maybe you've already looked ahead and saw that Well, 1 Corinthians 15 has 58 verses. I know Pastor John. It will take him forever to get through 58 (laughs) verses of Scripture. And you're right, it would. And so I have planned to break it down into three teachings instead of trying to condense all 58 verses into one teaching. We're going to break it into three teachings And this chapter perhaps is one of Paul's most dynamic presentations of the gospel itself. He teaches about the necessity of Jesus' resurrection, about the authority of Christ over all things, the importance of our witness and our being transformed into the image of Christ. And then the climax of the whole chapter is Jesus' final victory over death. Well, today we're going to look at a passage that I entitled Christ, the First Fruits. I just stole that title from Paul's writing, so he came up with it first. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 26, and we're going to see in verses 1 through 11 the gospel. In verses 12 through 19, the risen Christ, our hope, and Christ, the first fruits, verses 20 through 26. I want to go ahead and read the first point, the gospel, verses 1 through 11, and then open us in prayer. We find in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, 
I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve, and after that He was seen by over 5,500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. And Father, I pray your blessing upon the teaching of your word today. Though penned nearly 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul. Father, this is a great testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the truth that Christ is our first fruits. So Lord, let us hear today what the Spirit is saying to the church, to this church. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so he speaks about the gospel in verses 1 and 2. He declared it as something that we have received, something that we stand upon, and something that we must hold fast to. He said, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received in which you stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The Corinthians had not only received the gospel into their hearts, but they continued to stand upon the gospel. It became the foundation of their lives, and we might say the foundational principle upon which they had built their lives. This speaks about our position also that we have in Christ Jesus as we wait for our eternal reward. Even Christians today, like the Corinthians, we can become so entangled with the things of this world that we forget the gospel in which we are to stand. Paul reminds us in Galatians 5.1 that we are to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We're not to be entangled again into this world, the system of this world that is opposed to Christ because we've been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word that is translated as hold fast, it means to keep in one's memory. Sadly, the Corinthian believers had so complicated the gospel that they had distorted the beliefs in the gospel, such as the teaching that there were 
As we will see in a moment, they believed that there was no resurrection. They also divided, as we learned earlier in the epistle of 1 Corinthians, they divided over apostles, over evangelists, over preachers, over teachers, instead of uniting under Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus, numerous Corinthian believers were walking in the compromised paths of men while attempting to reach God through their own wisdom and their own understanding. And we can likewise complicate our faith by allowing certain doctrines and teachings and traditions and beliefs to displace the simplicity of the gospel. And Paul's going to lay out that simplicity to us here in a moment. You know, it could be that certain things that we get into aren't necessarily bad, but they become a danger to us when they supersede or nullify the word of God. The author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast. Remember that Greek word means to keep in one's mind. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. So the gospel is to be preached. It's to be received. It's to be stood upon. It's to be held fast to, for it is our only means of salvation And if we neglect any of these things, we may find that we have believed in vain. But according to the scriptures in verses 3 and 4, we find Paul saying, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again from the grave according to the scriptures. We need to understand that Jesus' death was not an unfortunate incident that came as a result of man's ingenuity or planning. Actually, it came as a result of God's predetermined counsel and foreknowledge, which the prophets foretold. And here Paul said in verses 3 and 4 that according to the scriptures, he doesn't lay out any of the scriptures for us, but we can go into the Old Testament, that which he was referring to, and we can find the gospel being presented to us in passages like Genesis 3, verse 15, in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, in Isaiah 53, in Daniel chapter 9, in Zechariah 13, 7, and in many other places in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He not only died for us according to the scriptures, but he was buried. Although Jesus died as a criminal between two thieves, he was laid in a rich man's tomb in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9, which says, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And although we may be able to be buried with the rich when we die, none of us can say that we have done no violence whatsoever or never had any deceit come out of our mouths. Even in his burial, the innocence of Jesus is seen And our guilt is declared. 
But also Jesus rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And although there are no Old Testament prophecies that directly states Jesus' resurrection on the third day, the third day is a big theme in the Bible. One time I sat down and with my concordance, I decided to look up the third day to kind of track that throughout scripture. And I discovered that three days... The number three, talking about three days, it's mentioned a lot. And it would take a a pretty significant study. I gave up on it. It's like, man, it it appears a lot in the Bible. Too much for my little brain to even comprehend. Maybe it would be a good study for you to do and share it with me. But we do find in Hosea's call for repentance, one of the clearest three-day references In Hosea 6, 2, he says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Now, Hosea was talking to the children of Israel and the declaration, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. But we also have a prominent third day scriptures, as I said, and here's two of them. We have the account of Abraham and his son Isaac. There in Genesis 22, when God called Abraham to go to a mountain, a mountain that I will show you on a three-day journey. We know that the mountain itself was Mount Moriah, and God had Abraham go to that mountain to offer up his only son, his son whom he loved, which we know was Isaac. And there, instead of offering up Isaac on that mountain, although Abraham was willing and even bound his son to the altar and raised his knife, God provided a ram in the thicket when his son has challenged him and said, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham responded to Isaac saying in Genesis 22:8, My son, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And God has provided himself the lamb, and his name is Jesus Christ. But there we have a picture of Jesus' forthcoming death, the three days Abraham viewed his son as being dead. But on the third day, God gave his son back to him. For three days, Jesus was in the heart of this earth. But on the third day, he resurrected from the grave. Jesus also gave connection to Jonah and the great fish, although not a direct prophecy. It was Jesus who connected the similarity of Jonah's three days and three nights in the great fish to his being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40, it tells us that Jesus answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here we discover the significance of the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried And that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. On July 9th, CNN host Don Lemon and Chris Como, while 
discussing the removal of public monuments in our nation, Lemon said, Jesus Christ, if that is who you believe in, Jesus Christ, admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. Lemon said, so why are we deifying our founders of this country, many of them who own slaves? Now, I would never say that we should deify the founders of our country. It's not wrong to have a statue to remind us of our foundational principles that our country was built upon, but let there be no mistake, according to the word of God, Jesus was perfect when he walked upon this earth. In fact, Hebrews 4.15, it tells us that Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ was perfect in all his ways. That is why he became the perfect sacrifice. If you take away his sinlessness, then he is as if any other being that's ever lived upon this earth. The gospel hinges upon Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the third day. And without his sinless sacrifice and his glorious resurrection, our faith would be empty and without hope. But Paul also presented eyewitnesses in verses 5 through 8. He said he was seen by Cyphus and then by the twelve, by over 500 brethren at once. And then he reminded his readers that a greater part of the 500 were still alive at that time. After that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by the apostle Paul. He said, as one born out of due season. So Paul testifies that Jesus was seen by Peter and by the 12, by 500 witnesses at one time by James, the half-brother of Jesus, by all the apostles, and then by Paul himself. The Bible states in Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established. And our Savior Jesus and the Father God knew that the witnesses of the twelve would not be sufficient. And so, God in his divine wisdom said, if twelve men will not be enough for you to believe that my son is resurrected from the grave, I'll give you 500 witnesses. But you might say today, we don't have those witnesses. Paul said a greater part of them still remain upon the earth, but... Now all of them, they're gone. And yet he has not left us without witness. For even today, we have the witness of creation. In Romans 1.20, it tells us, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We have the witness of creation. We also have the witness of God's word. In Acts 3.18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. We have the witness of the testimony of the word of God. We have the witness of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In John 18.17, Jesus wraps this up, both the Father and himself. 
John 8, 17 and 18. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So God the Father and God the Son bearing witness of the truth of Jesus Christ, but also we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit in John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will testify of me. We also have the witness of those who have believed. We have the witness of people like you and me who have trusted in Jesus Christ. In 1 John 5, verses 9 and 10, John understood the importance of our testimony, saying, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son has the witness in himself, and he who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given his son. But those who believe in God the Son, we have this witness in ourselves. We become a witness of the Lord's work in our own lives, and we can be that witness to others. And Paul recognized his position. He says, oh, by the grace of God, I've been saved. He said in verses 9 through 11, I am least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. That's how it should be in the church itself, whether it was I or they. Quite often, a lot of ministers, musicians, they're kind of caught up on the I. It's got to be me. I need to be the one who leads that individual to Christ. God, why did you let them do that? Well, whether it was they or I, whether it was you or happens to be me. If we bring someone into saving faith of Jesus Christ, then we should all glorify in that. Give praise to God for the work that he has done. No matter who is the servant and the tool that God might use, the instrument that God might use to bring someone to life-saving faith. But it shouldn't matter the who but what is happening? Who's getting saved? That's what's important. And Paul recognized that. He considered himself the least of all the apostles. In fact, he took it a step further. In Ephesians 3.8, he said, To me, who am less than the least of all the apostles. So here in Corinthians, he described himself as the least of all the apostles. In Ephesians 3.8, he said, I'm even less than the least. If the least isn't low enough, let's go a little lower. Paul said, that's me. Yet to this grace was given me that I should preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. In comparison to all the believers who had ever lived or were living at that time, Paul felt that he was less than all the least of the saints. And there's two basic reasons why he felt this way. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, because I persecuted the church of God. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, he described himself as the chief of sinners. Paul never forgot how the Lord had blinded him there on the road to Damascus for three days. The very last image, that's how I would understand this. Have you ever been had such a bright light shine in your eyes that when you close your eyes, it's kind of all you ever see for a little while is that light, the image of the light. That's what I imagine took place with Paul. He was blinded by the light of Jesus Christ. And I believe for three days, all this man could see that had once fought against Christ. All he could see was the image of Christ before him. And so finally, Aeneas came and laid hands on him, and something like scales failed from his eyes. On that day, the scales of hypocrisy and self-righteousness fell from Paul's eyes, and he understood his own sinfulness. And on that day forward, Paul understood the wonderful grace of God as well. The entirety of our faith hinges upon Jesus' sinless sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, which is a foundational principle upon which we build our lives. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646, That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today.